0: Well, this is, a, this is a big day, and if you're a guest today, we've been building up to, to this Sunday basically all summer long. And of course, it's got to do with the meal, the after lunch, back to church Sunday thing. But more than that, it's about this strategic ministry plan that we've been working on behind the scenes for the past 16 months. And so I'm kind of sentimental today, if that's all right with y'all, because I was thinking about three years ago when God called me to be the pastor of this church uh, man, I thought I knew everything I would ever need to know about being a pastor and I was re- I was remembering when me and Aaron first came to Luling Texas and we rolled in right out here on Central Avenue and pulled up and Scott was out there waiting on us and we came in for an interview with the pastor search committee and man I was just convinced I was gonna get the job you know I believe that God has called me to this church there's nothing that's going to happen to make it all fall through. And I just had these wonderful, romantic, and idealized ideas about what it was going to be like to pastor a church in a small town. I'm going to do potlucks, and people are going to bring me homemade apple pies. And, you know, it's going to be so sweet and wonderful. And, man, my family's going to plant roots, and I'm just going to be a small town church boy the rest of my life. And uh, little did I know how quickly God can knock you off your high horse and cut you down to size. And he did that, and I'm glad it all played out the way it did. Because in all honesty, if that day Scott greeted us on the sidewalk and said, hey, we're really excited for you to come be our pastor, but know this, within the next year, there's going to be a global pandemic. that's going to strike the whole world, and it's going to change everything you know about life and ministry. Our church needs lots of work. And we're gonna to have to just pretty much right out of the gate come up with $250,000 to renovate the building. And hey, listen, everybody's not gonna like you, and some people are gonna leave because of you. But it'll be okay, because some new people will come, and there will be bright spots along the way. But all in all, take it all together, you're gonna to have to take the good with the bad. I don't know that I would have said yes with quite the same enthusiasm that I did, you know? And I'm thankful for that because you know as well as I do that there are many times in life where we look back and we think, wow, if I had known what kind of hell I was going to walk through, I would have never even started. God is kind in that way. He doesn't always show us all the details of what we're going to face next. We get it in vague outlines and shadows. And we get this sense that, hey, something big's coming. My life's about to change. And we get met with all these doubts and insecurities about how we're ever going to make it through. And eventually, we just have to throw our hands up in the air and say to God, listen, if I'm going to make it, if I've got any hope to turn out the way I think you want me to turn out, you're going to have to show up, and you're going to have to do it for me. When I came here in 2019, Brad Mills had all the answers. Today, I stand here... In 2022, humbled, okay, I got no answers, but I think I'm starting to learn how to ask the right questions. And the first question we need to ask is, God, what do you want from us next? What do you want from us next? And today, we are handing over to you what we believe God wants from us next. It's a strategic plan to guide our church for the next five to seven years, 2030, Y'all looking forward to 2030? You got all your plans made for summer vacation in 2030? (laughs) Who knows what 2030 holds? Only God does, and if we walk with him day by day, when we get there, we'll be right where he wants us to be. But let me just give you the vague outline of it, and then let me preach this message, okay? Our strategic ministry team's been working for 16 months trying to figure out who we are as a church and where we are as a church. And the best we can come to with all the research that's out there is that within a 15-mile radius of our church, there are as many as 25,000 lost people who don't know God. They were to die today, they're going to go to hell and spend eternity apart from Jesus. So we believe that God's calling our church to share the hope of the gospel in our circle of influence with every man, woman, and child until they all know and follow Jesus. 25,000 people in the next seven years. Every last one of them following Jesus with all their heart. That's our goal. That's our direction as a church. And I'm telling you, it seems about as daunting as taking on a city like Jericho. But here's what I want you to know. We can face what's next with confidence when we respond to God in obedience and rely on Him in faith. So let me prove that to you from this passage of course, over the past three weeks, we've been working our way through Joshua 3, 4, 5, and now 6, trying to understand what God had to do in his people to get them to the place where they'd be willing to walk around a city blowing ram's horns, trumpets, and shouting to the sky in obedience to him. Of course, first he had to bring them across the Jordan River. And he did that in a dramatic fashion. He took the Ark of the Covenant and he planted it right in the middle of the Jordan River so that the waters parted and everybody walked across on dry land. Once they got to the other side, he instructed Joshua to take 12 stones out of the river and to heap them up in a pile so that people would always remember what an amazing thing God had done. And I told you that day that when we remember God's work in the past, it builds our faith to face what comes next. Last week, we saw the men of Israel renew their covenant with God in dramatic fashion at Gilgal. And I told you that when you renew your commitment to God by repenting of your past obedience and committing yourself to walking with him forever you can be confident to face whatever comes next but those two experiences dramatically altered the people of God it gave them a personal experience of his power and his presence with them and the reality of the covenant that he'd called them to fulfill And so here they are facing not a swollen spring river and not a dramatic, painful call to commit themselves to the Lord. But a giant city. The same city that 40 years earlier, their parents had gone and checked out. And came back saying, hey, these cities are well defended. And Apparently, they had stayed that way for 40 years. No deterioration or crumbling walls in the city of Jericho. I mean, the scriptures tell us flat out what the situation was like. In verse 1... Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one came out and no one came in. Now to put the predicament that Israel faced in strategic military terms, what we could say is that Jericho had seen the people of Israel coming and they had hunkered down for a fight. They had taken up defensive positions and they were ready to, to wait out a siege. Now, I did some research this week on siege warfare. And most people say that siege warfare, as we know it and as we've seen it in the movies, was really only developed in the Middle Ages. But clearly from the Bible, we see that the people of Jericho shut their doors and were planning to wait out the children of Israel. Siege is terrible. I mean, as far as battlefield tactics go, there's probably none more brutal or devastating on a civilian population as a siege. I mean, on paper, a siege is the encircling of a populated area with the goal of driving out the enemy forces by deteriorating their defenses and cutting them off from reinforcements and vital supplies. But in reality, a siege is a months- or years-long campaign under which an invading army starves and terrorizes a population of people. We've witnessed them all in our own life. Even this year, the Russians underlaid a siege of Meruapol in Ukraine, just bombarded it with guns. In the 90s, it was the Battle of Sarajevo with snipers and rockets. That lasted four years. In World War II, the Soviet Union... Laid a siege on, uh, sorry, the Nazis laid a siege on Leningrad. The Soviet Union lasted four years and lost a million civilians and a million soldiers in the Red Army. Siege warfare is brutal, it's terrible. And Jericho was going to be no different. Jericho was extremely well fortified. I mean, Jericho is one of the best archaeological sites in the Middle East. The rocks that came tumbling down there on that day are still there for archaeologists to excavate. They tell us that the city of Jericho sat on top of a hill, roughly six square acres in area. On the outside of its city was a mud brick wall that was 50 feet tall. Outside of the wall was an earthen mound that sloped down to a retaining wall made out of stones that stood 12 feet high. And on top of that retaining wall was another mud brick wall of 25 feet And so had you been on the battlefield that day with the Israelites, you would have looked up at a city surrounded by two walls, 50 to 100 feet in the sky. No way for you to scale those walls. No way for you to conquer the city. I mean, it was an impenetrable fortress. But not only was the city well fortified, it was also well provisioned. I told you, hey, siege warfare basically revolves around the ability to starve the population stuck inside. Well, we know that the Israelites entered the promised land in the spring because the Jordan River was swollen. And we read back in Joshua 3 that the spring grain had already been harvested and they ate some of it. And so the people of Jericho had already harvested all the grain they would have in the spring and had already brought it inside the city. And even today, they're uncovering clay jars full of grain. Not only that, we know there was a spring right inside of the ancient city walls that just still is flowing, it would have provided enough water for the residents of the city, probably as many as ten to 12,000 people. I mean, Jericho was well positioned to wait this thing out. I mean, Joshua and the people of Israel were looking at a city that would take months or even years to conquer in their own strength. But look what God said in verse 2. See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and all his valiant warriors. I mean, the people were out of their depth, totally incapable on their own of taking the city. And yet, nothing is impossible for God. I like the way Ward Wearsby put it. He said, The people of Israel were about to learn a lesson. They weren't fighting for victory. They were going to be fighting from victory. Despite all the challenges they could see, all the obstacles they were going to have to overcome if they were really going to do what God said they were going to do, He was saying the victory had already been won. I have given Jericho into your hand. I think this is the lesson that we all have to learn when we think about what we're facing next in our life, it really doesn't matter the challenges as we see them. You know, Brad Mills came here in 2019 and he told him all the challenges he was going to face. He would have said pretty quick, hey, I am not the guy for the job. You need somebody who can figure this thing out. But God knows everything. And when you know him, and when you trust him, you can face whatever it is with confidence. And sure, from the people's perspective and from our perspective, the stuff we face is impossible. We're out of our depth. It's beyond our ability. I mean, you just think about the basic stuff of life. I want you to think about the family and relationship stuff that maybe this year is the year that you guys finally work it out. You know, if I could fix my family, I would have already done it by now. Think about those destructive behaviors that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. Those things that you just can't seem to let go of, the things that if you imagine your life without them, you have to ask yourself what's left to live for. Can you kick those habits on your own? Can you fight those battles on your own? No, but I'm telling you, you can face what's next with confidence. Think about the promises that are laid up for us in the Scriptures. Like this, Jesus said, If you have faith, the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Later on he says, in all these things, in everything life can throw at you. In persecution in suffering, in sorrow, in grief. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I mean, consider that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a sinless life and offered Himself up freely on the cross for sinners like you and me. And after He died, His friends took Him down and delicately laid His body in a borrowed tomb. They thought He was going to end up like Everybody else was going to end up decomposing and de- deteriorating. And yet, three days later, by the power of God, he was raised up never to die again. I mean, there really is nothing impossible for God. The story of the Israelites at Jericho proves it. You can face whatever is next with confidence in God. My, my kids learned this song in their preschool that we used to sing, and it was cute when they were little. And uh, it's gotten into my soul, and I, I still think about it all the time. My God so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that my God cannot do. That's what I'm talking about. You can face what's next with confidence in the God who brought down the walls of Jericho and who raised Jesus up from the dead. But I've got to warn you. The confidence we're talking about is not a blank check or a rubber stamp for whatever your hopes and dreams are. Like, hey, I got confidence. I'm going to win the lottery this time. Never worked in the past. But hey, Brad said, I can believe. Nothing will be impossible for me. I'm claiming it. But no, that's what we're talking about. Instead, we can face what's next with confidence when we respond to God in obedience. You see, uh, yeah, Yahweh assured his people a victory. I've given Jericho into your hand. But then he rolls out this detailed plan. I know you noticed how repetitive this chapter is. I think the author of Joshua wants us to understand that the people followed God's directions to a T. Listen to him again. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man, straight ahead. I mean, these details are sparse, but nothing's really left to chance. God gives them all the directions. He gives them a seven days of marching orders. This is what you guys are going to do on day one and day two and day three and day four and day five and day six. And then on day seven, the walls will come tumbling down. And even though it's spelled out in pretty detailed terms, it'd be a stretch, don't you agree, to call this a military strategy. This is not a military strategy. This is, there's no flanking. There's no scaling of walls. They're a couple hundred, maybe even a thousand years away from effective catapults. They've got spears, swords, and slingshots. God doesn't tell them how to use any of that. It's not, it's not a military maneuver. What God calls His people to is a religious procession. The people are going to march around in an act of worship. And even though it's short on strategy, the one thing it stick with is symbolism. I mean, think about it from Joshua's perspective. Joshua is a man who knows war. Uh, we first see him fighting a battle. And so he's a strategic mind. And you've got to think, that he had already been trying to figure out how the people were going to take the city. He was sitting up on the hillside, looking at it, trying to identify places of weakness. He already sent two spies into the city, and they'd found Rahab, which we read about earlier. And so maybe he was trying to figure out a way to sneak in, do what the Greeks do in their war with Troy, and send the people a gift of a horse with all the warriors inside. And when they open it up, all the people come out and they conquer the city from the inside out. Maybe Joshua had a plan like that. Maybe he was going to sneak in and conquer the city from the inside. Or maybe it was just going to be some great show of force. I mean, they tell us that there were as many as 400,000 fighting men of Israel gathered on the battlefield around Jericho. So maybe Joshua just thought, hey, look, yeah, it will be costly We'll lose a lot of our men, but we got a lot of men to lose. We got 400,000 of them to maybe 10, 12,000 people inside the city. Let's give it all we got and let's take this thing for God. They said God's plans are totally different than Joshua's. No flanking, no weapon identification. It's just, hey guys, fall in line and walk around the city. you got to ask why. I think the first reason you take a look at the formation God instructs His people to do. You get the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, the 40,000 fighting men who are going to lead the way into the Promised Land before they return back across the Jordan River to settle down with their families. They're in the front. The rest of the men of Israel are in the back, 360,000 of them. And right there in the middle is the Ark of the Covenant led by seven priests with seven trumpets. You remember back from chapter... Three and four have the Ark of the Covenant is God's visible presence with His people. It's the symbol that God is with us. And wherever the Ark goes, God goes. And wherever God goes, we follow behind Him. They'd learned that through personal experience, that God is with us and He's for us. And now they were putting that experience to good use. They were going to march around the city with God. It wasn't just the Israelites. God was encircling and besieging Jericho. Then you got to come to this seven thing. Seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days, seven times around the city. I mean, what's that all about? You got the formation of God with his people and then the sevens. The scholars tell us that seven is the biblical number of completion and perfection, and thus what God was driving home for his people is this wasn't going to be kind of a win. This was going to be a perfect and complete victory. The walls were going to come down and everyone inside was going to be put under the ban, and we were going to feel the wrath of God. What do you think would have happened if Joshua had taken the basic outline of God's plans but added in some of the military strategy that he knew so well? What do you think would have happened? If he said, hey, look, um, this is all great and we'll start our day with worship encircling the city, but then we're going to... Send a group of men covertly under the cover of darkness and we're going to start chipping away at that retaining wall so that we can break our way in. You think they would have had as much success? You think they would have experienced the victory that God had promised today Jericho's given into your hand? No, I don't think so. I think what guaranteed the victory was that the people obeyed God completely. They did exactly what he commanded them to do. They walked around the city once on the first day, and then on the second day, they walked around the city once, and on the third day, once, and on the fourth day, once, and on the fifth day, once, and on the sixth day, once, and on the seventh day, they marched around the city and shouted. And that's when the walls came down. It was the obedience of the people of Israel that guaranteed their success. And now I want you to think about your life. How often do you flat out ask God, God, I don't know what to do next, you're going to have to show me. Now, I'm guilty of doing what the missionary pioneer, Hudson Taylor, said we often do. We make the best plans we can and hope they succeed. You ever do that? You ever guilty of just making a good plan and just setting out with hope? I hope this works out. Here we go. Or maybe you're a little more spiritual and he says you make your own plans, but then you ask God to bless them. Here's my plans, God. Rubber stamp them. Make my plans your plans, Lord. But how often do we do what he says we must do? We ask God for his plans, and then we do whatever he says. That's the way to guarantee success when you face what's next. That's the only way to have confidence. Not in your plans and your hopes. Not in your plans and a Hail Mary prayer that God's going to bless them. You ask God for his plans, and you do what he says. After all, I think it proves this story and our personal experience that God's not looking for the best people to bless. He's not looking for the brightest people to bless. He's not looking for the wealthiest people to bless, the smartest people to bless, the most experienced people to bless. Who's He looking for? Who does God want to bless? Obedient people. Humble and obedient people. Listen to what he says. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Now I want you to hear that again. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. God's looking for people to bless. God's looking for people to strengthen. He's not looking for the smartest. He's not looking for the best. He's not looking for the wealthiest. He's looking for people whose hearts are completely devoted to Him. What about what Jesus said to His disciples? If you remain in me, and I remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's the people God wants to bless. He wants to bless people who are open-handed before Him who are willing to do whatever He says, people who are completely devoted to Him, people who'd be willing to look like a fool and walk around a city for seven straight days and then shout. Like, that's going to do anything. That's the kind of people God are looking for. I don't know, do you have any big goals? Do you have any big changes and plans you want to make? Don't make the mistake of attempting them in your own strength. Open up your hands. Pray to God for wisdom and direction. Say, Lord, what do you want for me in this situation? How do you want me to proceed, Lord? If you'll just tell me, you know I'll do it. Maybe to open up the Scriptures, search through. Maybe your Bible's got a concordance in the back. You're trying to figure out what to do with your family, and you just look up family or children. You start reading, searching the Scriptures, trying to find God's answers in the Bible. Maybe you call up a godly friend. You say, can I take you to lunch? Can I take you to coffee? I need to run some stuff by you. And you lay out the conundrum. You say, what do you think I should do? Search for God's direction. He'll show you. He's looking for people to strengthen. That's what we're doing as a church. We're saying to him, Lord, we don't think you've left us here by accident, but we think you've got a purpose for us. Show us your way and we will walk in it. And when we do that kind of thing, we could be confident to face what's next because we're going to respond in obedience. But there's one more thing I want you to see before we go eat lunch that the victory of Israel at Jericho went deeper than their willingness just to obey God. God's not looking for people who are just going to go through the motions. There's something deeper about the people of Israel that you and I need to learn. Their obedience was a reflection of their faith. Now they were completely and wholly relying on God. Look again at verses 11 through 14. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once, and then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus, the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. This is a phrase that gets me. They did so for six days. Now, I don't know your personality type. My wife's all the time trying to psychologize me and tell me why I act the way I am. I'm just a messed up person, that's it. But no, I don't know what your personality is like and how you deal with monotonous routines. But I gotta think that if I had been called up to march with the men of war, around the city of Jericho. I would have been excited and enthusiastic, gung-ho even, on the first day. Let's do this thing. Let's march around the city. And maybe on the second day, you think, hey, yesterday wasn't so bad. Let's get after it. Let's do it again. But I know myself well enough to say that I would have been the guy, looking around on day four and day five and day six, saying, hey, do y'all think this is doing anything? Are we getting anywhere with this? We're walking in a circle. I mean, and get this, that we don't know this for, for, for real. We, don't, we can't say for certain because the scriptures aren't completely clear about it. But if the, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh are in the front, and all the rest of the men are in the back, then by the time the men in the front of the line get back to the camp, some of the men in the back of the camp haven't even left yet. And so it's like, I would be the guy still in camp, and everybody's starting to roll back in. I'm like, well, y'all already made it. What you know, do I need to go? I'm just going to hang here at the house. Um, <laughs> that would have been me. Is this thing working? Are we getting anywhere? Do you think this is going to do anything? What's the point of all this? Not to mention, maybe you got Canaanites up on the city walls laughing at you, mocking you. Hey, what are you guys doing down there? going to walk in a circle? Uh laughing like the French guard in Monty Python. I mean, what is going on? But you don't get any of that from the story. No hint of doubt, skepticism, no faltering faith. Instead, it's just a matter of fact. They did it on day one, they did it on day two, and then they did it all six days. And then on the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times. I and mean, these people were a different kind of people. They obeyed God because they trusted Him. And if He said something, they were going to do it because they knew Him. They believed Him. Maybe they prayed their own version of what David would later pray in Psalm 108. God, this doesn't make sense, but we believe that You're going to give us aid against our foes. For human help is worthless. With God, we'll perform valiantly. He will trample all our foes. Maybe they expressed the kind of confidence their descendants would put together in Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my hope come from? My hope comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. These people had internalized an unshakable faith in their great God. They believed with everything within them. God told us to walk around this city and shout. We're going to walk around this city and shout we're going to wait and see how he shows up. Looking back on this religious procession, the preacher who wrote the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.30, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. The victory at Jericho was never simply a matter of following orders, as if God's looking for people who are willing to go through the motions. Victory at Jericho was won by faith. They marched around completely confident that God was capable of doing what He'd done before, convinced that He was about to do it again. This morning, if I could just leave you with one idea about whatever it is you're facing or what we're facing as a church, it's this. The confidence we have to face what's next doesn't rest on our ability to comprehend all of God's plans. It doesn't rest on our ability to execute all of God's plans. It rests on our willingness to trust and obey. If we'll trust Him and do what He says, we will fulfill His purpose in our lives and in our church. It will all be by faith. Indeed, it's only by faith and obedience that we can face what's next with confidence. I know that because I've experienced in my own life, I was doing some stuff this week and looking back over some of our old documents, and from 2019, Brad Mills. I'd met with a pastor, and he told me about this exercise that he'd done with churches where you get in a room with all your people and you give them the phrase we see a day when and let them fill in the blanks and so in July of 2019 I was driving up here on Pier Street and happened to see this sign across from the Sonic and I asked James Matthews to get it down for me and I brought it in because there's this phrase on here that captured my attention said, Central Baptist Church, a church with a vision. And so I asked Mike, I said, hey, Mike, our sign says we're a church with a vision. What's our vision? He said, oh, I don't know. I think we had one at one point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way most, most churches go. We, don't, we didn't really have a vision. We were just kind of what? I mean, we got a new pastor, believe in God for great things. We got a lot of hopes and dreams. But hey, on July 31st, Wednesday night, we sat around in a room And we finish the sentence. We see a day when? I'm going to read to you some of these. We see a day when Central Baptist Church genuinely loves with compassion and heart, not just superficially. We see a day when we all come together to proclaim the gospel and start a revival. We see a day when the church has influenced all of Luling to bring people to Christ. We see a day when every single person living in Luling hears the gospel and has a clear opportunity to choose Christ. We see a day when young people are taught to be responsible adults and follow the Lord. Hey, we're going to do that if we can. We're going to teach you how to be responsible adults and follow the Lord. We see a day when women lead other women to know the Bible, inspire each other to live a life pleasing to God. I think I see the fruit of that every Sunday. We see a day when little kids learn the gospel every week. We see a day when CBC is a school for those being trained and the principal is a discipleship. We see a day when CBC is a hospital for broken people. We see a day when our youth contribute and come to church. When all our people are fed spiritually and physically. When all of our members are in one accord and serve God. When everything we do... Is for God's glory. Now, three years ago, I might have thought that I could preach some messages, come up with some programs and strategies to help us get there. But I'm convinced. I'm convinced when I look at y'all, when I meet with Pastor Jerry. And I see teenagers in the balcony or on the front row. man, God did it. And if God can do that in three years, take dreams and hopes about what might can be and start to make them a reality, I start to get a little excited. Because what God has called us to next is a big task. But if we'll respond in obedience... And rely on him in faith. There's nothing our God cannot do. Will you pray with me.